Hey everyone, I'm Ubi Shabander and this is my podcast port where we'll talk international affairs, geopolitics, media, and war with some of the world's leading minds, usually my friends, and every once in a while, the troublemakers from our base of operations in Istanbul, where the West and East collide. One of the best book, if not the definitive book, on Iran. The book is called The Iran Wars, Spy Games, Bank Battles, and the Secret Deals that Reshaped the Middle East. The Iran Wars by Jay Solomon. So make sure to buy that book. Uh, Jay, it's on it's on Amazon. People can uh, can purchase it online. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's on Kindle. It's on uh, every, every device you can get it. Good. Well, I mean, it's a very topical book for what's going on in the region and the world these days. And, you know, especially amidst the the ongoing uh, Corona pandemic. It's a, uh, it's a, and it's, you know, it's a great, I have to say, it's not, I'm not just saying this as a, you know, as I'm your friend. It's a great read. It's not, it's for such a heavy book, you know, for anyone who has no idea what's happening in the region. If you're going to read one book, read this one. It's, it's very easily accessible. It's just, it's a great, it's a fast read. Thanks. Yeah. It was, it was hard because writing about, sanctions or the nuclear fuel cycle or some of the diplomacy that was going on between the Iranians or the Americans, it's not always easy to make that accessible or an easy read, particularly, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the sanctions war is interesting, but it's, it's not, it, it can be difficult to sort of streamline it and make it accessible. So I really did focus in, in writing a book to make it a, a good story, even though some of the issues are pretty weighty and um, not always easy to, to, to simplify um, for the common reader. So thanks. I, I really did try to make it a good read, even if the, the issues are very weighty. So, so Jay, you had to travel like around the world, uh, meeting all type of people uh, to make this book. Tell us a little bit, you know, what went into, into making this book. And it's funny because I was, my career at the Wall Street Journal, most of it, or a good part of it was in East Asia. I was based in Indonesia, Korea, uh, South Asia, and India. So when I moved back to the U.S. and and became the foreign affairs correspondent, I actually didn't have that much of a Middle East background. But starting in about one of the one of the first things I did actually when I came to the U.S. was I got shipped back to Lebanon and I covered the 2006 war between Hezbollah and uh, and the Israelis. I covered from the from the <laughs> Lebanese side. So right, I can tell, <laughs> right. But I could tell in 2006 that something was brewing. Like you could just feel like this, this war was about something much broader than just the Arab-Israeli conflict. This was, mm-hmm. you know, had tentacles all over the place. And I, I remember back being in Beirut back in uh, 2006, it was not long after the former prime minister Rafiq Hariri had been assassinated. And, mm-hmm. I remember talking to Lebanese politicians and they were telling me about all the guys who were still on the Syrian hit list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought it was kind of bullshit. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really know what to make of it. But man, within the next three years after that, um, I think most of the guys who they told me was on this hit list were dead. Mm-hmm. Car bombings, grenade attacks. So that, that experience covering the war and getting a sense of what was going on between the Iranians and their allies and the Western countries and their allies made me realize that, you know, that that the conflict between Iran and the U.S. and and the powers involved was going to be a really, maybe the, one of the most defining issues uh, on the, on the foreign affairs front. So I really spent the next decade just covering it from almost every angle I could find, whether it was what was going on in Iraq and the Iranian support for militias there, whether it was in Lebanon and Hezbollah, whether it was the, the Syrian war and that, that started and also the issue of Iran's uh, nuclear program. Um, so let's talk about that because that's yeah. perhaps a, an inflection point here uh, because your book was published right before President Trump took over and obviously withdrew the U.S. from the, from the Obama nuclear deal and has charted a completely different path policy-wise on Iran from his predecessor. Yeah. Um, yeah, my book came out in the end of 2016, so just about a year after the the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, was was um, finalized mm-hmm. in Vienna. And yeah, as the 
as the Trump election was, his election was coming, coming up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I tried to make the book as neutral as possible, which is mm -hmm. hard because the issue, the Iran issue might be the most polarizing foreign policy issue I've ever dealt with because it just ties in mm -hmm. whether it's the Israelis or the Saudis or, you know, the Iranian revolution, the history of U.S.-Iran relations. It's, it's really difficult to, to kind of chart a, a straight path and which, and which I tried to do, but mm -hmm. I, my book, I think one of the conclusions where I just didn't see how the, the JCPOA, JCPOA was going to be tenable, uh, at least in the original form, because while it kind of brought a set, maybe like a truce for a little while, the, the issue of Iran's past nuclear weapons work was basically covered up, buried, whitewashed, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. The, the, the deal allowed the Iranians to continue to sort of work on their R&D. It mm -hmm. basically really reduced the pressure on them to not pursue a ballistic missile program. Mm -hmm. So if you just charted like, you know, down the line, like you, 10 years from the deal, which is not that far off now, um, which is 2025, mm -hmm. when, the, when the clauses are supposed to re relax and the Iranians are supposed to basically be allowed to have an industrial scale nuclear program, their ballistic missile the program would be way more advanced. They'd be allowed to import and export weapons. So They're that's the that, so explain to our to our um, you know viewers here. So that's the controversial sunset clause. Yeah, I mean, basically, the Iranians were enriching uranium, uh, which the United Nations said was illegal. So the U.S. the way they were doing it was illegal. The U.S. and the and the U.N. had put really tough sanctions on Iran, and under this deal. The Iranians allowed, were allowed to cap, I mean, they capped how much they were producing. Mm -hmm. Basically, the, the theory was they would not be allowed to produce enough uh, nuclear fuel to um, have enough material for one nuclear bomb, one atomic mm -hmm. weapon. And that was the term of the, of the JCPOA. That was kind of the linchpin. It would keep them below the threshold to build a bomb. But that those caps, those restrictions were only in, we're going to start to be lifted in, um, in just a few years from now. And eventually Iran was going to be allowed to produce unlimited amounts of nuclear material, which on the one front they don't really need because they, they have only one functioning reactor, which the Russians are fueling. So you're kind of like, why, what are they going to do with all this fuel once it's legal for them to have it? And um, yeah, they just have an industrial scale program. And at that point, this timeline, this, this um, scenario where Iran would be kept to below the amount of material to have one bomb would be, would be gone. Um, so and that's were, coming up mm -hmm. pretty closely. You just look at that and you're like, how is that going to be sustainable unless mm -hmm. the Iran there's some total change in the regime? Like I, I think, and I know this from interviewing Obama administration officials, they said, look, and it's not a crazy theory, I think. It was like, look, mm -hmm. we're at this really tense point um, the Supreme Leader is getting old, he's sick. So let's have this detente with the Iranians. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of cool things off. And in five, 10, 15 years, you know, if they're trading with the international community, if they're more engaged, they'll, maybe they'll moderate themselves. And at that stage, we don't really care if they're gonna have this huge nuclear capacity because we're not that worried about them. I mean, that was the bet. Mm -hmm. um, the problem was, there was there's just been no signs as of yet um that they were that they were going to moderate that they're capable of moderating and i guess one criticism of the trump um policy which i was probably fair saying like he, he's he, he killed the deal so quickly like this this bet this this hope that iran might if they're trading with people they might moderate themselves eventually that that was kind of not tested because it didn't he took over and it was the deal was kind of so that was the big but, gamble coming out of the obama administrations that this deal would give time for iran for ayatollah khomeini and his regime to quote moderate yeah i mean khomeini's almost 90 now so mm -hmm. i think he's not gonna be around much longer and you know it's a young population i, I think i've been iran it, it is true that the population there is is pretty um welcoming to the u.s you know you have more than a million iranians living in the united states so there's a very strong link despite all this tension and yeah you have a young population you have um the, the supreme leader is going to pass soon and 
you know, you have a leadership that ostensibly got extremely radicalized during the, the revolution and the Iran-Iraq war, that, that leadership is starting to pass on as well. So it's not a crazy idea to think that, oh, you know, if we just cool things off in five or 10 years, maybe um, the, the political situation will, will moderate and their, their economy would have been opened up to some extent and, um, you know, but that's we, a pretty we, big gamble, given that five years from now, under that deal, they would have essentially been able to pursue full-fledged expansion of their nuclear program and ballistic missiles. Correct. And it's the system there is not, I don't think, you know, it's basically an oligarchy in a lot of ways, mm. you know, even if the Supreme Leader leaves, there's the, the money and the, the IRGC's control of that place is pretty, um, it's so extensive that it's it's kind of like it's not just simply oh let's open the place up i mean some of the signs and i wrote about this book is that you know there was really no certainly on the economic side there was really no sign that the supreme leader even the regime wanted to sort of modernize or open their economy Um, my father was a sinologist and he wrote papers in the 70s and was heavily involved in kissinger's opening up of the Chinese economy. And the situation now has changed, but originally you looked at the, the Chinese in the US had shared interests when, when there was a, they had a common uh, enemy. Common enemy in the Soviets. And the Chinese did want to modernize their economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and with you know, since the JCPOA, you had this weird thing where Khomeini definitely wanted his money back. He wanted the oil money mm-hmm. back, he wanted um, money of, from his foundations that was mm-hmm. that were frozen, but they didn't really take any steps to, at all, to uh, modernize or reform their economy. And quite the opposite, if you, if you followed it in the kind of the months after the JCPOA was signed, mm-hmm. you had um, a lot of Iranian dual nationals get arrested. And I don't mm-hmm. think that was interesting. Uh, I don't think that was a mistake. I think I think Khomeini and the IRGC were telling, you know. Uh, dual nationals, you don't, don't think you're just going to come in here and, and sort of open up our economy and uh, make a lot of money off this place. I think so this was in the it. wake of the deal, the nuclear deal. And so there was this period of hope when a lot of, of that Iran's economy would open up and all these dual national Iranians from Europe and the U.S. went back to Iran trying to do just yeah, that. Yeah, they'd be the tip of the spear for sure of, of, a, of a surge of foreign business. There was this, this uh, Iranian-American businessman, Siamak Namazi, Mm-hmm. who who was he was like a business consultant he got he got um thrown in jail not long after the joseph jcpoa then they threw his father in in jail and now mm-hmm. they've you know they've taken this this woman from who was working for uh, she was british iranian who was working with an arm of reuters she's mm-hmm. still in prison i mean they've kept doing it and i think that was uh you know they, they use hostages to make money but they also i think wanted to send a chill mm-hmm. uh on uh, uh, to the to the kind of the Iranian diaspora that you know don't think you're going to come in here and just kind of make a lot of money and try to open up uh, the economy because the supreme leader he's almost more fearful in his if you listen to his speeches and his talks of, of kind of the cultural war he sees that as almost a bigger threat than military threats to the revolution so I think that was you know you just had this weird disconnect where you had John Kerry when he was still in Secretary of State like traveling around Europe and telling companies and governments to invest in Iran because right. that was the, uh, that was the deal, right? They were going to limit their program, but now we need to boost up their economy. But I don't really think, I mean, how many, I don't think really ever wanted that. I think he definitely wanted, you know, the t- tens of hundreds of billions of oil wealth right. that was, that was frozen. He wanted, you no know, he wanted enough money to stave off a economic collapse. He did not want some flowering of a, of a, of a new, open Iran. I just don't so, think you that. So the Obama's administration's main argument for me, it seems that their, their main line here was that, well, Iran was on its way to a nuclear program that would be weaponized anyways. I mean, was that true? Uh, you mean, they, I mean, they had, a, their, their theories were kind of all over the place. On the, the one hand, that a lot of them, and I, a lot of them honestly thought this whole argument that they had nuclear weapons designs was kind of you know, like a conspiracy theory, even though, mm-hmm. you know, the, the IAEA and all reports and have, have found extensive evidence of them developing um, 
weapons capabilities. I think mm -hmm. it was a, I think they really believed that Iran could be a stabilizing partner in the region and, you know, as a great power historically that, you know, they have the right to have a nuclear um, capacity for civilian use. And mm -hmm. yeah, I just think they were kind of in, I don't know if it was in denial or they, they just, the weapons side of it, it just kind of got minimized or wasn't taken that seriously, even though since the JCPOA, you know, the, the Israelis launched that raid and they found all sorts of uh, documents that were being sto stored, hidden, and even apparently the IEA said there might have been nuclear material. So why are you hiding all of this, um, you know, knowledge of weaponization work if you don't plan to sort of take it off the shelf? But surely the Obama point. administration would have known all of that. They would have had the intel, they had the experts. Um, I mean, was this just a matter of, at this point, uh, President Obama was just too heavily invested in this deal as part of his legacy? Or do you think there was something uh, else going on? I think, I think definitely that, like, I know part of it, if you really look at the timeline, 2012, mm -hmm. the Israelis started to do some military exercises, which I know from my reporting that the, Iran, that the Obama administration was, was kind of really nervous that this was a prelude to some military strike that was going to draw the Americans in. And I don't think it's a coincidence it, that it was that year, 2012, when the Americans and the Iranians started to do these secret talks in Oman mm -hmm. that uh, really pissed off the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Israelis. So that's when it started, that. 2012. That was the first secret talks um, mm -hmm. between, you know, direct one-on-one -on -one talks between the Americans and the Iranians on the nuclear issue. And then it, it accelerated next the next year. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it was, it fits into what I was saying earlier. It's like, yeah, they had this past weapons work. We know all about it, which I don't believe they fully know all about it, but mm -hmm. we know all about it, but you know, we're going to, we're going to get into this. We're going to bring them into the international community. We're going to, um, you know, trade, we're going to produce trade. So that just the desire for them to have weapons won't be there. So I, mm -hmm. I don't think it was a, total denial. I think it was the strategy was, yeah, you, you engage them and you bring them into the international community. You, they feel less threatened. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, uh, they don't have, um, they won't have the desire. The, the point I used to raise was like, mm -hmm. so let's get, the Iranians have been our, our enemy for the last 40 years, whatever. Mm -hmm. You're going to give them an industrial scale ability to produce nuclear fuel, which, you know, enriching uranium is a is a dual use technology. You could use it to power a reactor, and you can use it to make the material for the bomb. That's mm -hmm. that's why it's such a sensitive technology, and why the U.S. multiple U U.S. administrations have always tried to basically say, you know, beyond the countries that actually have weapons, mm -hmm. countries we prefer them not to be able to enrich uranium. You know, you can buy the fuel from other countries, but don't do it yourself. So, right. I just never understood when I talked to the U.S. officials like, how are you going to tell the Saudis? the Turks, the Egyptians, that they can't enrich uranium or develop this capacity when we've just blessed the Iranians' ability to do it. So and it's do it on a massive arms race. scale. What's that? So it would just lead to a massive nuclear arms race. Or a cascade, yeah. And I think you've mm -hmm. kind of seen that. You know, the Saudis are, are, are trying to, de they're developing nuclear technology and are totally rebuffing U.S. requests that they not develop the nuclear fuel cycle. Turkey... Mm -hmm also has a pretty, I think President Erdogan a few months ago said, look, <laughs> he, he kind of opened the door that maybe Turkey needs nuclear weapons. So I, I just, I didn't understand, on the one hand that the Obama administration would say, this deal is a, pro, a, prolifer a non-proliferation agreement. It's going to stop the spread of nuclear technologies. Right. But I, I was always like, well, how then are you going to get these other countries not to match the technologies Iran has if, if we bless it. And I could never totally get a good answer for that. So explain to, you know, to our listeners here, what, what this whole concept of you know, breakout capability is, you know, we, we heard that a lot from the Obama administration and from experts that, you know, it's a matter of not just building uh, the bomb, but having the breakout capability, that being the main red line, uh, both for the U S and for Israel and for others worried about Iran having 
that nuclear weaponization. But for for people for the average layman, what does it mean to reach that ability to have that breakout capability without actually building a physical bomb? Yeah, I mean that's what I was talking about earlier. It's basically the time it would take for a country to amass enough nuclear fuel to build a bomb. Hmm. And the Obama administration's um, policy was that we need to keep Iran a year away from having enough material for a bomb. Um, and you know, the criticism now is since Trump pulled out, Iran is, is kind of breaking those caps and is now has enough fuel to break out maybe in six or seven months, which is a true criticism. The other side of it is, well, these caps that you're putting on, they're, they're gonna be lifted soon. So yeah, maybe we're keeping them within a tighter breakout ability now, but it's not gonna be around forever. And if you've kind of lifted sanctions and, and given them a pass for a year, your ability to actually have leverage on Iran later down the road would be quite less. So the breakout, that is what the breakout is. It's the time it would take a country, Iran, whoever, to have enough material to build a bomb. And the, the JCPOA was predicated on this idea of keeping them uh, a year away from, from that breakout time. So your book comes out in a you know, very partisan, uh, heated environment, right, as uh, President Trump is being elected. Uh, right, immediate, almost, almost immediately after the nuclear deal, um, is well is signed by uh, President Obama was never ratified by Congress. So how how is how was your book sort of received in Washington? You had interviewed the um, Obama administration officials who were involved in these negotiations. I mean, how did your book land in in Washington in that type of environment? Well, a, a kind of a precursor to that is some of the work I did in 20, 2016 for the Wall Street Journal during that election year. If you may recall, I, I broke these stories about secret cash transfers to Iran from the U.S. that were basically um, coincided with the release of American uh, prisoners who had been held in Iran. The, the, the Obama administration sh shipped about $2.7 billion in cash, like actual cash, to cash Iran pounds. Yeah, to get these, these um, prisoners home. And... For me as a journalist, honestly, I did not even think about the politics of how this might play out. I was just like, oh my God. Like, when I first learned about that, I'm like, they ship that? How do you even ship $2.7 billion in cash? Like just the mechanics of it really got me interested. And then the more I dig down, it was like, oh yeah, the, the cash was sitting on these planes in Vienna and the US wouldn't let the money fly off to Iran until the American hostages were, were the prisoners were released and on a plane out of Tehran. So cash for so hostages. Yeah. So it doesn't, you know, I, I was trying to open about it, about it. Mm -hmm. I just played down the facts, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist for some people to say was, well, was this ransom? Like you, mm -hmm. you wouldn't, you, they only got released when you gave the money, which is almost technically the definition of ransom in the, right. the Obama administration was, it was money that, that they were owed under an old. So they did not like the R ward. They did not like the word ransom. The well, they hated it. And uh, I mean, I, was, I, I raised this story because these stories first started coming out in, in August of 2016 and like mm -hmm. Trump started tweeting about it, right. even though it had really nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. She, right. she had nothing to do with it, but it became, it was used by Trump as a cudgel to attack the Obama administration. I remember getting emails, friends saying, you idiot, you're gonna get Trump elected. And literally like, I didn't- You were just reporting the facts. Yeah, and it was, it's a, I mean, I don't know how anyone wouldn't, any journalist wouldn't go like, wow, that is a really interesting yeah. story. You, we, we cash shipped almost $3 billion to the, to the regime. So, so why, why was the Obama administration trying to spin that? Why were they trying to spin something that just seemed so obvious on the face of it? Because his legacy and their foreign policy doctrine was so tied to this idea that diplomacy of, um, rather than conflict is the key to, to stabilizing the world. It's, it should be the, the, the leading foreign policy tenant of the United States. It was, you know, that, that was his legacy. This, I, the, the Iran deal, diplomacy over pressure or conflict. So any story that, you know, us, the, the, they were very much focused on, oh, the reason that these American prisoners got released was because of the diplomatic 
you know, connection we now have in Iran. So a story that said, well, actually they weren't released until we sent them almost $3 billion in cash. That looks like just a, you know, a pretty crass kind of payoff, right? Yeah. So it, it really undercut, it was a story that very much undercut the narrative that the Obama administration was trying to impart. And, I, you know, diplomacy is great. I'm not saying it's, it's not. I'm just saying that the reality, you have to look at all, you really have, the Iran JCPOA deal, you really had to scrutinize every element of it, just like you would any other story, just because it was, you know, diplomacy and um, doesn't mean you shouldn't scrutinize all the tools they used. And I, I think it's the reason I was stating that it, it, it was kind of the philosophy, the tenant of the Obama years was that, you know, we're, we're not the Bush administration, diplomacy is, is the tool, and look, we got our prisoners home, X, Y, and Z. So that's why I think there was such a pushback, and it mm. might be why Trump, I think Trump jumped on it just because it is such a, it's a very visible kind of visceral thing, the idea of pallets of cash being shipped, you know, on, out of some runway in Geneva. It's like a yeah. pretty visceral image. Straight out, of, straight out of a movie. I mean, so do you think this was a case of maybe U.S. media during the times of the negotiations for the nuclear deal and then after the, the deal was signed between the Obama administration and Iran? I mean, was there a sense that, well, you know, it's, it's Obama and, you know, maybe we'll, we'll give him a pass on this? Or, I mean, why wasn't there that much scrutiny? I mean, obviously you're digging into this, you know, was was there enough scrutiny from U.S. press at the time, given you know all these flaws, frankly, that uh, were being pointed out by journalists like you? I mean, I think the Bob administration was very good at messaging, very, very successful at it. I mean, they were very disciplined. I mean, mm. the the Trump administration, it's, as you can see, they're, <laughs> they're all over the place. Uh, I, the Obama administration was very um, disciplined in their messaging, which is to their credit, they're good at it. Uh, I do think the subjects itself, you know, I was lucky as a journalist to basically be given the time to dig in on issues that are really complicated. Sanctions, the nuclear fuel cycle, you know, Iranian proxies, a huge chunk of journalists who probably covered the, the nuclear deal were doing it, you know, not in depth. They were kind of being, they were cycled around and said, oh, you know, this deal's being signed, report about it. So you didn't have the, the, the luxury or the time to do a lot of that reporting, you probably wouldn't totally understand it and come to the idea like, this sounds like a, you know, it sounds like a good deal to us. Mm. So I, I think it was that. I think, I do think the press was, I mean, certainly if you compare it to the current environment, the press was, um, t tended to t take it a bit easier on. on See, I think now office. you're being diplomatic because the, the Ben Rhodes factor. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, to his credit, he was good at creating a system that, um, that, was, um, that was disciplined. It, it was weird, though. I can, I can remember you had, the, it, there was this echo chamber. Mm. I can remember going to, when the, in the summer of 2015, when the deal had to sort of be, the Congress either had to try to sink it, they didn't sign, you know, they didn't approve it because it wasn't a treaty, but they either had to sink it or not. There was this incredibly aggressive, um, campaigning on both sides. And I can remember going to one event on the Capitol Hill where there's an organization called the Plowshares Fund, which is funds a lot of non-proliferation stuff. But at this event, the Plowshares event was being, that was pro-CPOA, they were funding the event. They were fund funding the mo almost all of the speakers at the event and some of the reporters at the event were being paid by them. <laughs> so it was like, Oof. it was like bananas. It was like, they, 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 had, they were giving a lot of money at the time to NPR um, mm -hmm. and to some other reporters. So it was kind of, it was a very strange. And it's technically a nonpartisan uh, foundation in Washington? They say they're nonpartisan, but they also are kind of identified as being progressive. So I, I don't know if you can say you're progressive and be totally nonpartisan. Um, right. So, but that so was, this is one of Ben Rhodes' main ways of basically selling the deal. Yeah, he's actually now he's I think he's on the he's a board, on the board of directors of the Plowshares, but he oh. gave interviews where he was saying like, you know, Plowshares was one of the most most important um, tools we have in selling the deal. I mean, all administrations try to spin. I'm not saying they don't, but of course, like the situation I just described, I'd never, as a journalist of a long time, ever seen a situation where you had, 
you know, an ally of the administration, you know, holding events to promote it, paying the, the uh, experts who are speaking and actually even paying some of the reporters who are covering it, um, wow. or the organization that they were. So that to me was kind of a different, different beast. Um, and it was, it was a nasty environment. I, it was not fun because I, like I was describing the cash for hostage. I just thought that was a great, really interesting story. Like, and I didn't see how anyone could. And getting the New York Times wrote a big editorial about the fake, called it the fake hostage, the fake hostage story. <laughs> fake hostages, like but they're real hostages. They're, I mean, what, what, what else are you going to call them? Guests? Yeah, they just, they bought, I mean, that story felt like it was like, um, ghostwritten by Ben Rhodes. It was like, it's their <laughs> money. We were just giving their money back. And like, you know how Iran works. Hmm. You can make the argument, okay, let's end this, um, this dispute over, um, over, over this money from the Shah's era. Let's mm -hmm. get people home. Let's do it. I, I can right. understand that. But then you still raise a question. It's like, why send cash? At that mm -hmm. point, the, the, the JCPOA was in check. They could have sent a check there. And I guarantee you, knowing mm -hmm. enough I do about the Iranian regime, the IRGC wanted cash. If that, that, and that, that IRGC is over, Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If that money was kind of wired to the central bank of Iran, mm -hmm. there probably wouldn't, you know, elements of the Iranian government, whether it's President Rouhani, the foreign ministry, you know, development institutions would have wanted some of that money. But by mm -hmm. sending it over in cash, cold I, hard I cash, totally, narco style, totally irresponsible. <laughs> like that money probably, you probably know, that, how much of that money do you think probably ended up in Syria? Hard cash is being flown in yes. on planes that are controlled by the IRGC. You know, it's not like, I mean, that money was sent on planes that were almost certainly controlled by the IRGC. Where did that money go? I, I'd be shocked if a lot of it didn't well, end let's, up. Let's talk about that. War in Syria. So that's really important. So let's go through, so here's, you know, we're, you've gone through those timelines. Now your book comes out 2016. Now what happens? The deal is signed, you know, President Trump takes over. The Iranian Revolutionary Guards are flush with cold, hard cash from these pallets of cash that have been given by President Obama. Now what happens? I mean, this is where the whole of kind of a lot of the narrative is strange politically. Like the Obama administration yeah. kind of made, particularly because Trump is taking a more hostile mm -hmm. approach, they kind of like, oh, our years in power were, were kind of this period of peace and, um, you know, calm, but <laughs> look what was going on in Syria. The, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard were absolutely pivotal to um, helping to run one of the worst cases of ethnic cleansing since, you know, the Second World War. We just mm -hmm. decided not to confront them. So there was, you know, there was no co real conflict between the Americans and the Iranians. But if you're a Syrian uh, citizen, one of the, what's the death toll there now? How, how many... I mean, well, the, well, the UN has stopped counting after a hundred thousand, right? So the, this this period of calm is is um, it's not real, right? It was mm. it wasn't it was there was unbelievable bloodletting on a on a level we've almost not seen since World War II, right? I mean, I mean, you've studied this closer than I. Mm. There have been Bosnia, but I think Syria now is probably seen as as far worse than what happened in Bosnia. Um, and yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely, if it, if it hasn't, it's definitely getting there. So do you think yeah. you can draw a direct line between the nuclear deal, the relief sanctions, sanctions relief that, that was lifted at the time, and the you know, billion dollars in just cash, untraceable cash that Qasem Soleimani and the Iranian Revolution, Revolutionary Guards had, and the slaughter in Syria? I mean, I think the cash thing is like would probably be almost possible to directly trace where that money went. But just knowing that regime, I would be shocked. And it's, you know, money's fungible. Maybe the money did go to the central bank, but you, they, they had, there's $3 billion. You can take it out from elsewhere. But, you know, in the course of my negotiating, I do think if you look at the timeline, the, the IRGC really starts to ramp up in, and Hezbollah in Syria in 2012. Mm -hmm. And that's when the Iranian talks with the U.S. happened. And I was told, and this, this was probably one of the more controversial parts of my book, I was told in 2013, that's when President Obama's famous red line, Obama said, the, the Syrians start gassing their people, you know, they're going to pay, they're going to retaliate. And 
you know, the U.S. and the U.N. concluded that the the Iran the Syrians had gassed people near Damascus, and you know, everyone that you know that was the that was a weekend we were together in in uh, Turkey. Yeah, everyone we were was preparing for a U.S. military strike, and then yep. it just stopped. Obama says, "Okay, I'm not doing it." Uh, and part of the rationale he used was that Congress hadn't signed off on it, so mm-hmm. I wasn't going to do it. Um, but in my, if, if you look at the timeline, 2013, at that exact moment, is when the U.S. and the Iranians are really almost, they almost have the, the interim agreement of a nuclear deal signed. And I interviewed Iranian mm-hmm. officials who said, look, if the, if the Americans had started bombing Assad at that point, um, you know, the, the Iranian regime's closest ally in the Arab world, uh, the, the, the IRGC and Khomeini would have pulled the plug on the talks. Um, I was told that by the Iranians, and U.S. officials had told me, yeah, you know, we, they kind of got through the grapevine. If if there was attacks in Syria, not only were the talks almost almost certainly going to unravel, but Iranian proxies were going to start hitting uh, American forces in Iraq. So, and that was in public that, knowledge at the time. Yeah, exactly. So I argued in the book that, yeah, the American part of the reasons. The, the Americans kind of, the Obama administration kind of didn't forcefully try to push back on what the Iranians and the Assad regime are doing, which they never did, was hmm. because they had this whole, that they, so much of the Obama administration's second term policy was um, basically tied to getting that nuclear deal. And hmm. that was a pretty big cost to make. I mean, you, people totally debate whether the administration what the U.S. could have made much of a difference. And I, I think if they had at least tried to establish a no-fly zone or prevent, you know, this massive influx of outside foreign fighters into, into Syria from Lebanon, from Iraq, from Afghanistan, they, this, they probably... Those were Iranian-backed foreign fighters. Yeah, Hezbollah fighters, Shia militias from Iraq, Shia militias from uh, Afghanistan. I mean, you know, they brought... They, these Shiite forces came from all over the, the Middle East, um, and they're still there, um, a lot of I mean, them. that's so, a pretty big revelation, right? So for the first time in modern history, a government uses advanced binary chemical weapons, sarin gas on its own people, killing well over a thousand. And at the time, unbeknownst to the world, the Obama administration was in, in advanced secret talks with the Iran, and that factored heavily in Obama's decision not to retaliate and hold the Assad regime accountable. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, yeah, just think about it. You're having these really high-level, close talks with with senior Iranian officials. If you started, you know, bombing the Syrian regime, hmm. uh, their closest ally, even if these diplomats had wanted to say, I think stay. I think the the order from Tehran was, you know, pull out. Uh, we're in a different phase, um, and that was the other kind of just the strange. Um, I guess the, the strange um, mm. terminology, the strange um, just kind of culture of that whole period where you had this unbelievably savage war and the Obama administration kind of everything they painted was like, this is, this is a move towards peace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're stabilizing the Middle East. And so it's this kind of disconnect where, you know, there's this literally a massive systematic gassing of people, which has not happened since, God knows how long, mm-hmm. and the international community decides to essentially stand down. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty big price to pay, and it was even stranger than that in the sense that when the JCPOA, the the nuclear deal was being negotiated and finalized in Vienna in the summer of 2015, uh, there was a, there was a hope that John Kerry and the EU Foreign Minister um, Frederica Mogherini were pushing that you know once we get this. Uh, nuclear deal signed, um, we can work together on basically getting a, an agreement, some sort of um, agreement to stop the Syrian civil war. They thought they were hoping that they could um, build on the Iran deal to, um, yeah, to basically get a deal in Syria. And what we what we learned later on was that at the, in the very kind of midst of the um, nuclear negotiations in Vienna, Ghassan Soleimani was headed off to Moscow 
to jointly negotiate uh, and execute what would be this joint Russian-Iranian operation in Syria to save Assad, which, as you know, is, mm. uh, has been, God, the tens of hundreds of thousands who've been killed um, in these Russian airstrikes inside Syria. So, you know, even in the midst of the JCPOA, the, the Iranians were going behind our backs, the Americans' backs, and kind of putting in place this unbelievably barbaric operation to save Assad. So, you know, you brought up a good point. You're talking about, you know, Iran and Syria, Iran in the region, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and all the proxies, you know, and so we, we hear a lot about, you know, ISIS, the Islamic State, Daesh, their foreign fighters, Al-Qaeda, you know, that's part of the U.S. counterterrorism mission and you, you can, you know, almost the whole world is united in that. But what about those Iranian foreign fighters? Why was there not as much as a focus as it were that, hey, these guys were as dangerous, as radical as the other bad guys, Islamic State, ISIS, and Daesh, and Al-Qaeda, and that it would hurt American interests, would obviously, they would now be able to kill more uh, civilians in the region, cause more chaos, now that the Iranians have this nuclear deal and have all these billions of dollars in, in extra cash. Do you think that I idea never really sort of um, gained popularity in the policy realm in Washington, it seems? I mean, I think part of it was that, you know, ISIS was beheading Americans very, you know, publicly and, you know, that type of visceral, I think, re I think there was a visceral reaction to the West, like, oh my God, we cannot let these, I mean, understandably, you're not going to, we're not, we're not going to let these guys get a, a foothold. You had um, terrorist attacks in Europe that were tied to ISIS, which was not something that was coming from, you know, Iranian militias operating in Syria. You didn't have this direct, um, threat against uh, Westerners, Western Syria cities. So it's, it's understandable uh, in that context why there wasn't this kind of aggressive, um, you, know, you could see why it would be much harder to make a claim that oh, we need to go out against these Iranian back militias in, in Syria mm -hmm. in the same way that they went after ISIS because they weren't targeting um, Americans or the Western cities. But if you take it broader back, there, there, is, there has been a history, whether it was it's, there's this debate in Europe and Washington, which you know, which is usually like Sunni. Sunni extremism is, is much more of a threat to um, West, whether it's from Al-Qaeda or ISIS, than mm -hmm. Shia uh, extreme, extremism, you know, Iranian extremism. And that, that's gained a lot of traction. I think, you know, 9-11 obviously was huge, but before that, what was the biggest terrorist attack in in the history of, of America, it was the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut, which was basically Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that was in the so, early 80s. Uh, that was 83. And then, mm -hmm. but then you go to the Iraq war. I mean, we lost hundreds, not thousands of people in Iraq, and a large chunk of them were targeted by Iranian supplied IEDs, munitions using Shia fighters. So if you actually like took out the, the politics of it or the, semantics of it, the number of Americans who've been killed by Iranian extremism over the last four decades, it's probably the numbers compared to this kind of Sunni extremism, it's probably pretty close. If you, if you count soldiers killed in Iraq because of Iranian militias um, and, and that type of violence. So let's talk a little bit about Iran's financial network and the, the whole, this sort of uh, cat and mouse game of sanctions with U.S. Treasury Department going after all these various Iranian front groups that are tied back to Ayatollah Khomeini and tied back to the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. So let's keep things simple here. So the Ayatollah and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, they have this network of foundations and, and companies that are ostensibly civilian, but they've been yeah. found to support foreign militants, other nefarious activities. So now what does the Trump administration do now that President Trump wins the election and wants to change course from President Obama's prior Iran policy. Well, and I get a lot, I got into the, a lot of this in my book. If, mm -hmm. if the Americans, and this is both the Bush and Obama administrations, really did set up one of the most sophisticated um, arms of financial warfare probably ever created. And this started, I would, in the book I argued, this starts in basically back in 2006 when Iran, you know, is kind of thumbing its nose and continuing to enrich uranium and 
the U.S. decides, okay, we're really going to we're going to escalate uh, a financial war. And what they learned, and what is so interesting, is that you kind of that the strategy was foreign governments are probably not going to help us. They're they're too self interested by business or money, mm -hmm. or they want to trade with Iran. So we're going to basically turn it around and and make it up to the companies themselves, uh, whether it's in Germany or South Korea. They're ba we're basically going to create a situation where they can either trade with Iran or trade with the United States. They can't do both. Um, and knowing the power of the U.S. economy, that, that's not a very hard choice. But mm -hmm. they, they really kind of set up a system where they would start targeting Iranian companies or companies that were trading with Iranian companies uh, wherever this was, whether it was in Dubai, Malaysia, um, you know, take your pick. And they really were adept at finding what they called nodes. These were certain banks or certain companies that a lot of foreign money or a lot of oil money was, was flushing through. And if you, if you, you didn't even have to formally like sanction them. If you just said such and such a company as a, as an area of concern, you mm. could basically, you'd see foreign companies just stop trading with them because they knew that if they were caught trading with a company of concern, they might lose access to the United States dollar and to the market. So that was the, the, the kind of the theory, the strategy forced foreign companies not to trade with Iran. And so it was working. Oh, and it worked. I mean, it really started to work, I would say, probably towards the end of the Bush administration and then Obama administration, his Treasury Department in 2011, 2012 really escalated it. They then sanctioned the Central Bank of Iran, which made it almost impossible for foreign governments to trade in oil. And they start, they hit all their, all their major state banks. Uh, and so that was an incredibly, I mean, when I went to Iran in 2014, this was about a year after Rouhani was elected. I mean, you got the sense from Iranian officials that if that, if that, if the Obama administration hadn't entered into negotiations with them, hadn't uh, mm -hmm. started releasing some of the oil money, they were not going to be able to like pay their civil servants. I mean, it was really wow. extreme. And so you know, then the, the Iran nuclear deal happened and the, and the sanctions were relaxed. So the tr there was already mm -hmm. this really in, uh, sophisticated infrastructure in place and knowledge in place about how to hit Iran. So when Trump came in, they basically just had to re-institute, re re um, reconnect, reactivate the, the sanctions uh, strategy that had worked under both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. I think the, uh, Iran is in a, in a worse place in some ways because when mm -hmm. this started in 2006, around then, Iran had extremely high oil prices that were, they were flushed with oil money. So they right. had a big buffet against um, those sanctions, even though they started to hurt. But now Iran does not have that, um, they don't have that uh, support. And uh, uh, Rouhani's predecessor, Ahmadinejad, so mismanaged that economy. Mm -hmm. When I was there, they told me they had about a $200 billion hole in their banking system from just bad management. So if you already have that hole, you have low oil prices, and you have the reimposition of sanctions, you can see why Iran is, you know, really hurting their oil. I think at their height, their oil exports are, are between 2.7 to 3 million barrels per day. I think now it's down to below 500,000, which is, you know, really critical. Now you've got oil prices plummeting and demand plummeting because of uh, the coronavirus. It's a really bad financial situation for them. So that could theoretically impact the Iranian Revolutionary Guard's regional and international terror network if they can't pay the bills anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's been, you've kind of had conflicting reports over the last year. There have been stories out of Lebanon, and I think even some public statements maybe by Hezbollah figures saying like, you know, finan financial support from Iran is, is not like it was because of the sanctions. Other, I know the Obama administration would always say, look, the, the support of these militias is, is very inexpensive. Uh, it doesn't take a huge amount of money because uh, they're not giving them like F-16s. They're just, you know, providing them small arms and training. So... I mean, you kind of get conflicting reports. The Houthis, mm -hmm. one of their proxies in Yemen, are still very, you know, they're active. Lebanon, Hezbollah is still active. But you do hear reports, stories that um, 
you know, like Hezbollah, for example, is their balance sheet has been hurt because Iran just can't fund them the way they used to. And Lebanon itself is in an unbelievably bad financial position. So now how unified is America's Arab allies or America's Arab allies here in sort of being on board with this, you know, sanctions, you know, now that President Trump reimposed and may expanded in some areas, these, you know, what could potentially be crippling sanctions. When we talk about America's Gulf allies, allies in the region, I mean, what was there a divide on, you know, just how much they were going to go along with this, particularly when we're talking about some of the major banks in the region on whether or not they were going to put a stop to Iranian capital flow? I mean, I think, you know, once we impose those sanctions, the companies, irrespective of the, of the governments, we found follow suit. I mean, mm-hmm. there was always this, at first, it was, it was, the criticism of Trump was kind of weird. At first, it was like, ah, people won't listen to us. No one respects Trump, so people just trade with Iran. Now it's flipped to, oh my God, these sanctions are working too well. You got to lift them for, <laughs> because of coronavirus. So they've kind of right. flipped. I've, so I find, even under Obama administration, when you had Kerry running around trying to get foreign banks to do business with Iran, you found, you found not that many takers because it was a, a political year. They didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, Iran is so, their economy is so di- dominated by the IRGC. I think it's hard to find business partners in that country who aren't linked to the IRGC. So there's always been wariness. But so I think the companies themselves have largely followed suit. I, I've always found that the Arab you know, the Arab allies or the Middle East countries are kind of, they kind of sometimes speak in double talk. They, they definitely <laughs> wanted, I, certainly during the JCPOA, you know, during the, a lot of them were not huge supporters of the JCPOA for the reasons mm-hmm. I stated, i.e. Iran was suddenly going to have all this money and they were eventually basically had a green light to move forward with a nuclear program, even if they could claim it was civilian. Um, so they, at, you know, there, there was always a lot of support for hard sanctions on Iran. I guess it's gotten a little different now because you've, the Iranians, I think when the Iranians start hitting back, and as you know, over the mm-hmm. last year, as the sanctions have really intensified, there have been attacks on oil installations in the Persian Gulf, the Saudi oil installations. If the country were attacked, all signs from Iran, and those countries don't seem to be that excited about a hot war with Iran. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little complicated. They've, I think it's a game of, of chicken, really. Iran is lashing out and seeing if the other you know, countries in the region will be intimidated. Right, exactly. Or, and if they can raise the cost to the Trump administration, because you know, President Trump himself has not been someone who's talked about his desire to get into more military conflicts. Mm-hmm. In the Middle East, even though he did hit Syria a few times for its chemical weapons attacks. So, yeah, it's been a really delicate issue over the last kind of year because the pressure has been reapplied and intensified. And I think if you talk to any real knowledgeable official about the Middle East, they'll say, look, if you want to pressure, if you want to push back about what Iran's doing, what they're doing as far as um, expanding these regional networks, it's going to be painful. They're not going to just accept it. And mm-hmm. I think during the Obama time, it was a bit of a chimera. They were like, oh, it was peaceful. But it was, that was, there was no pushback, really. The Iranians were, you know, arming the hell out of, of Assad and, and mm-hmm. killing half a million people. And we didn't do anything to stop it, so we weren't really being targeted. If you were going to try to stop it, obviously there'd be some, it would be tense. So mm-hmm. I think that's where, kind of where we are right now. The U.S. has been trying to push back more and by all signs of financial pressure is having a real impact, but it's also caused more um, Iranian uh, lashing out. Um, so about that lashing out, you know, this is yeah. also happening at a time when the corona pandemic is really having a huge impact on Iran. It's taken out some senior generals in the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and the top political echelons of officials and advisors around Khamenei. Do you think that makes the possibility of a conflict between Iran and the United States, you know, more more likely or less likely. What's what's your you know, prediction? I've always, I've, I've always been. It's it's kind of you look at the history of the U.S. Iran conflict since the revolution mm-hmm. in '79. The U.S. actually has been incredibly restrained. I would argue. You know, you had '79. You had American hostages for a year taken out of the embassy there. 
that's that's 79 in, into 80. 83, you have both the U.S. Embassy in Beirut and then the U.S. Marine barracks in Lebanon blown up, killing almost 300 people in, in mm -hmm. Lebanon. Uh, you had, in 2006, the bombing of the um, oil installation in Saudi by, I think it was, it was an arm of Hezbollah. That was the, and the U.S. never really hit back. You know, I know during the Reagan administration, George Shultz, the then Secretary of State, who's not exactly the most hawkish guy, he almost resigned because he couldn't believe 241 mm -hmm. American Marines were killed by Iranian proxies and we didn't hit back. Um, so I think if you really, there, there's this, if you look at the history, given the amount of Iranian targeting of American citizens over the decades, the U.S., the only time they really, the U.S. really kind of hit back pretty aggressively was the so-called tanker wars of the mm -hmm. 1980s, where the Iranians, because of the Iran-Iraq war, were trying to slow traffic in the Persian Gulf. I mean, any, and even during the Iraq war, after 2000, uh, during the Bush administration, you know, the U.S. saw rat lines of supplies coming from Iran into Iraq to supply uh, militias to attack mm -hmm. the Americans, and there was some people wanted to hit back, and we really didn't. So if you look at that, I just wanted to raise that, because the, the, the kind of drumbeat in, the, in Washington is always like, oh, the US, we're so close to starting a war with Iran. We're so irresponsible. But if you really take a step back, it's like <laughs> we've gotten hit a lot of times and didn't do much. Um, so I think now it's, it's you know, killing Gus and Soleimani was a pretty big deal. Uh, that, that definitely crossed. Well, World War III somehow has not broken out despite Ben Rhodes' best uh, predictions there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I was always, you know, the Iranians shot some missiles that didn't seem intended to really cause that much damage, and then they shot down their own airplane. Um, and, I mean, there's definitely been some tension, but I, I still think I've always been a bit skeptical of some massive direct conflict a, because the Iranians know it could end their regime, and B, the U.S. has never been that interested in a conflict with Iran and in the Persian Gulf. And mm -hmm. I just am pretty skeptical that at this time we're going to see some massive escalation. I, I talked to Trump administration officials. I think their, their theory is, look, our sanctions are hurting them. We don't want to mm -hmm. get dragged into some war. They're, they're lashing out because the financial panic, the pain is so strong. Let's just, let's just keep it going. Uh, you know, we'll set, we're not going to let them, obviously, we'll obviously set some red lines. Killing Ghassan Soleimani was tied to the fact that they were hitting American bases, but I don't think there, there's a sort of knee-jerk desire to get dragged into some conflict. It's more like just keep the financial pressure going and, you know, try to limit what their, their ability to support these, these proxies in the region. So Qasem Soleimani, let's talk about him a little bit. He's been such a central figure across everything that Iran has been involved in, whether it's in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, where, where with clashes with the U.S. military, basically Ayatollah Khamenei's right-hand man. So as you were doing your research for your book, I mean, did you, what was your perception of just how influential he was? And, you know, you had both the Bush administration and the Obama administration essentially have, you know, not wanting to do anything about Qasem Soleimani, worried that it would lead to some, if they, if they did hit him, uh, that it would lead to some sort of retaliation. And then President Trump comes in and then just January this year, takes him out. What type of impact do you think that, uh, that, that surgical strike against Qasem Soleimani is likely to have? And, and just in a broader sense from perspective of, you know, from your research and from your work out in the region, just how, how central of a figure was Qasem Soleimani to uh, Iran's operations? I mean, it's funny because I, I think I, I'm pretty sure I wrote the first long profile of Qasem Soleimani in the, mm -hmm. in the American press. This is in 2012. And at the time, it was described as this kind of secretive, uh, you know, figure that was the brains behind everything. He was described, if you've ever read any of the John Le Carre novels, as a yeah. Russian operative named Carla, who kind of was behind all the Soviet Union's dirty operations around the world uh, and targeting the, the British and the Americans. He was kind of described as Carla. And the first article was just this, he's, you know, the secretive guy who's, who's behind virtually everything Iran is doing from Iraq to Lebanon. Um, 
And that turned out to be true. It just was interesting. He went from this, over that time, he went from this secretive figure to like posing, you know, posting selfies of himself in the, on his, on his, on Iranian media and taking pictures from the front. So he, he became a very public figure over that time. But yeah, I, I described him almost as he was a combination of, of kind of the, the head of the CIA, the head of special ops, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He kind of, he, he, his official title was the commander of the Quds Force, which is the international arm of the Revolutionary mm -hmm. Guard, which basically, which is tasked with expanding the revolution. Um, mm -hmm. Which is, so that was his official title, but he was, yeah, he played a role that was both um, kinetic, you know, he'd support supply, like during the Iran, I'm sorry, the Hezbollah war with Israel, he played a very central role in making sure missiles was, were still getting to, to Hezbollah to do the fighting. Mm -hmm. But he also was like a diplomat. In Iraq, he played a very big role in kind of negotiating who of the Shia politicians would, would take positions of power. Um, and in Syria, he played this huge role of basically negotiating with the Russians on a joint um, operation where the Iranians basically supplied the ground forces to, to um, prop up Assad and mm -hmm. the Russians supplied the air force. So he was, he really had many arms, which is why he was so interesting. He was a diplomat. He was a, a spy. He was a militia commander and taking him out because he had just so much experience in so many relationships. I mean, I think that's a pretty big deal. And I think it definitely mm -hmm. crossed a line in the sense from what I've been saying before, the Iranians had, had hit us. They hit us in Iraq repeatedly through the militias. And mm -hmm. the U.S. government certainly knew where Ghassan Soleimani was at times when he'd come into Baghdad. And we never we decided never to go after him. So mm -hmm. I do think it was not just the operational kind of side of it, you know, as far as um, taking out, you know, it'd be like losing your superstar quarterback in football or Mm. center basketball it's it's hard to replace the superstar uh but i also think it's it has you know the fact that someone like that could get taken out is probably going to make the iranians a little less secure operating in some of the places where they probably felt almost immune uh particularly iraq so jay one of the fascinating um topics in your book uh that just jumped out at me was the of course the the issue of the Iran's nuclear scientists and how the Israeli Mossad just had this somehow uncanny ability to just find these nuclear scientists and then mysteriously those scientists would die. Uh, I mean, it was again straight out of straight out of out of the movie. But almost wherever they went, these nuclear scientists who were involved in Iran's covert nuclear program would somehow mysteriously die, be assassinated, and you detailed some of that in your book. No, it's interesting because I've done a lot of research on the history of the Iranian nuclear program, the people involved. Um, a lot of these guys are, you know, not exactly well known. And I did a lot of reporting out of Vienna at the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the body that kind of, they're the watchdogs, so the weapons watchdogs. So I had a pretty good sense on who, which individuals were involved in Iran's program. And the Israelis or whoever was um, targeting these scientists had pretty good intelligence because the guys they were hitting def it, they weren't just nuclear scientists that they were guys directly involved in some of the secretive uh, military work mm -hmm. um, and so they, they the intelligence was pretty extensive and the fact that the Israelis actually sent in commando teams in recent years to some of these warehouses where documentation and paperwork of the nuclear weapons testing was housed and they got it out shows you that they've have a pretty good intelligence network and have penetrated that country pretty well i don't totally understand how but you mentioned like azerbaijan mm -hmm. i i did reporting about some of the scientists who were killed um most of them were killed with someone putting um like magnetized bombs under their car and blowing right. them up and uh you know you can't always trust what's coming out of Iranian media, but one of the storylines was one of the guys who, who killed one of the scientists was essentially brought to Baku and, and trained up by uh, Israeli Mossad operatives in 
Azerbaijan and then sent back into um, into Iran to, to execute this attack. Um, and that sounded like pretty plausible, knowing that the Israelis have a good relationship with Azerbaijan. The Azer, the Azerbaijan, the Azeri government doesn't have a huge love affair with the with the Iranian mm -hmm. uh, Islamic Republic. So yeah, it was the this conflict is is nasty in so many ways, <laughs> whether it's hacking, financial warfare, or absolute actually assassinations, which is why I was interested in the, doing this book in the first place, because it just, it, it, it was so, it was so much was tied to it, global oil, uh, Middle East peace, the Iraq war, the Afghan war, it's just everything kind of tied to, um, to Iran. And that's, you mentioned Ben Rhodes, I did interview him for the, for my book and he did, mm. I, what, I did ask him like, why was President Obama so obsessed with Iran when he came into office in 20, 2009, and it was this, a belief that if you could somehow forge a better relationship with them, all these other relations, other these other conflicts might abate. Maybe you get an Arab-Israeli peace agreement. Maybe pulling out of Iraq would be less uh, difficult. I mean, that was that was the belt, but the bet as well that Iran was so active in all these places that um, forging a better relationship with them would allow for these conflicts to be solved. Which, as you said, was not an easy bet, and you could argue the opposite happened. That we, we kind of the Obama administration tried to relieve the pressure and give them money, and they only accelerated their activities in these places. Jay Solomon, the author of the Iran Wars. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much for for your time. And uh, you know, you and I had a chance a few years ago. We were running around on the Turkish Syrian border, and uh, you know, we'll we'll have to do that again sometime. That'd be great. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Jay. Again, the book is The Iran Wars by Jay Solomon. Thanks for listening to my inaugural podcast of the Port Series, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.